words appear. The email addresses and groups mentioned on this program no longer exist. Blind Like Me does exist in its new incarnation on groups.io. To join, send a blank email to blindlikeme plus subscribe at groups.io. That's blindlikeme plus subscribe at groups.io. Welcome to Blind Like Me, and as we were discussing just a minute ago, if I'm not mistaken, I think this is show number 50. Uh, Happy anniversary. Thank you, sir. It's logical we did 49 last week that this would be 50, but our statistician Don Shaw keeps up with those things, so we won't get too carried away. We won't open the champagne just yet. Oh. Larry Johnson, welcome to Blind Like Me, sir. How are you? Thank you. Very, Very well, thank you. You're in San Antonio, Texas, is that right? Beautiful San Antonio. Beautiful San Anne. Uh, have you spent a lot of your life there? Is that Well, of... it, it, it's uh, going to be 30 years this month now that we've been here. So that's that's a good chunk of our life. So, uh, 94, 84. So you moved there in 74. Uh-huh. So you weren't there in the 50s and 40s when I was there. Oh, no. No. Definitely not. Well, we moved to San Antonio in 1942. Uh-huh. My parents, my father, worked for Nabisco, and he was transferred to San Antonio. We lived there from 42 to 55, so I basically grew up in the shadow of the Transit Tower. Mm. Transit Tower is probably gone by now, uh, but mm. uh, anyway, San Antonio. And you, how old did you say you were? Uh, how old am I? Yes, sir. Well, uh, this next week... Uh-huh. Matter of fact, on the 28th of this month of August, I will be 71. 71? Yeah. And you're still lucid and uh, <laughs> uh, able to uh, communicate with your fellow man? And, as, as long as you don't ask my wife about that. Well, it gives me hope. I'm 60, fixing me 64. Okay. And uh, you worry, when you get that age, as you well know, you begin to worry a little bit, your health begins to fail just a little bit and you start worrying about those older years but you seem uh, you seem to be doing fine how long have you been been blind how long as far as uh, i've been told I, I lost my sight when i was six months old as a result of um, infantile glaucoma and uh, so my my memories of uh, of being able to see are, are you know, way 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 back yeah and you were born in 1933, about right thereabouts. Yeah, very good. You're a good mathematician. Well, I, my father-in-law is fixing to be 70, and he was born in 34. So it just oh, only. Okay. So you were born okay. in 33, right after the Depression. Yeah. During the Roosevelt administration. That's right. Uh, the second or the first Roosevelt administration. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, we were barely past them leading us out into the woods and losing us in 1933. And there wasn't blind people uh, would have had a hard time back then. It would seem to me that it would have been a whole lot tougher to be blind then, I, I suppose, than it is now, of course. In, in some respects, perhaps so. Um, but I'll tell you what, uh, I was very fortunate. I was born in Chicago, and I, my first 25 years or so, I lived in Chicago. And uh, back back then, uh, Chicago was one of uh, very few boards of education that uh, began integrating uh, visually impaired students with uh, regular students in, in school. So I had the opportunity to go to a regular public school uh, from uh, first grade on. Even that young, because you would have started school in like 39, 30? Exactly, yeah. Uh-huh. So, it, man, that is very progressive. They, uh, they certainly were. I don't know if that trend continued there. I don't know what the story is right now, but it was certainly novel at that time of course they didn't use the term mainstream they didn't know what that meant but they but our first five years in elementary school we uh, we were in our homeroom we had a special uh, braille teacher she was sighted but she was totally fluent in braille and insisted that all of us be fluent in braille Mm -hmm. And uh, so all of our classes were taken with in the homeroom up until the fifth grade, and then they started to um, uh, integrate us and send us to um, the other classes, and then we'd come back uh, to do our homework in the homeroom. And we had we had the Braille writers there, and we had the Braille maps and the globe and Braille books, and uh, it it was just a complete schoolroom, and uh, I, I think it was a very valuable experience for me. Now, and this woman would teach you all the different subjects. Like she would not only teach you Braille, but she taught uh, math and, and science and history right. and whatever there was to teach. She was the the teacher of the blind. Right. Right. That's an interesting concept, and I'm not sure a bad one. I think maybe pretty good. Uh, and, I remember and, that uh, we had to we had to go home and and do homework. I, this was uh, like in my third grade. I remember this distinctly that. We we had to learn the the slate and stylus, not just the braille writer. We had to learn slate slate and stylus, which of course you know you have to write backwards and oh, yeah. write down and all that, and then read the other we way. We had homework every day, and I hated I hated that braille homework. I that was the most onerous thing in the world. And you know, today I bless her for it because I'm I'm a very avid braille reader now, and it's really my preferred. Uh, Mode of communication. You read you read uh, library books in Braille and oh, that yeah. sort of thing. Oh, yes. Is that right? Uh-huh. You people that can do that, I can't. I never did. Never did get that far in Braille. But now uh, you say us. By us, you mean you and other blind Chicagoans. Yes, the, there were three uh, elementary schools that had uh, classes for visually impaired students. Um, it's you know Chicago's a pretty large city, so they had them strategically located uh, throughout the city. And so there were three elementary schools, and one of the interesting (laughs) aspects of this was that uh, we took the bus to school, not Uh not a school bus, but regular public transportation. Okay. But in order to uh, be able to get back and forth to school, uh, they assigned eighth grade... um, students to be our 
our travel guides. And these students would go to our homes and pick us up, and then we would take the bus. And back then there were things called streetcars, which yeah. were, you know, electric uh, conveyances that went on tracks. And uh, I, I remember having to take um, one streetcar and two buses to get to school with my eighth-grade travel guide. Uh, and it certainly did teach me a lot about mobility. Uh, I learned, you know, where the streets were and where the buses went, and uh, later on it served me very well for my own independent travel. The other unusual aspect about these um, travel guides is that um, they were hearing impaired. <laughs> oh, so the deaf kids took the blind kids to school. Right. What a deal. I love it. Now, part of that had to do with the fact that the, uh, they, there were only the same three elementary schools where these... Now, they weren't totally deaf. They were hearing impaired. They were hard of hearing, as yeah. they called them back then. Uh, they could hear us. They wore hearing aids and so on. But they, uh, because they had to go to just one of these central schools also, they uh, lived out of the neighborhood. And so it was more likely that they would be close to where we lived rather than right next to the school. Okay. I think that was one of the reasons that they selected them. And, of course, they were reimbursed for their uh, bus fare, and that was their, uh, their gain in the whole process. But it was also an opportunity for us blind kids to learn a little bit about uh, kids with other types of disability. Yeah, they, they must have been able to hear some because it, it is very hard for a totally deaf person and a blind person can barely communicate. I mean, you can't, you, you can't communicate with them I mean, because there's no... Well, know, the only you know. way you can do that is with uh, uh, sign language uh, and, and putting your hand on the other person's hand. That would be it, yes. Yeah. Um, but and so these, that's, that is so progressive for that, that time. I would love to know whose idea. There must have been some legislator who had a blind child that got this, because that's unheard of, you know. In yes, I don't know the I don't know the genesis of it. I do know that it was a Chicago Board of Education a decision and. Uh, and as as I said earlier, I don't know if they continued that beyond, uh, you know, into the yeah. 80s and 90s and so on, and uh, whether it has uh, changed in any way. But certainly, uh, it was very novel at that time, and and uh, I really feel that uh, that we benefited a great deal from it. Well, I think so. Now, was there a, was there an Illinois school for the blind also, or do you know? Yes. Yes, and matter of fact, my mother took me to the Illinois School for the Blind, which was in Jacksonville, and was going to enroll me there, um, but she changed her mind. And one of the reasons she changed her mind was because although I, I was visually impaired, I still had some vision, and um, glaucoma uh, causes very often for the... Um, the uh, eyeball to become enlarged and it was um, aesthetically not very pleasing to see uh, yeah, these, these eyes see. Uh, plus the fact that um, in the early years and I was four five six and seven light was very very painful to me and so I used to have to wear a very dark glasses which my mother would paint black with shoe polish and and then I'd wear a stocking cap over that. And, uh, of course, uh, people in Jacksonville said, well, uh, 
the solution for this is we just have his eyes removed and put in plastic ones. And my mother balked at that, and she said, well, <laughs> yeah. but if, if he has any vision at all, I, I, I want him to still be able to use that. So thank God that she made that decision, and we went back to Chicago, and then it was shortly after that that she discovered the fact that the Board of Education had the uh, day program for blind students, and that's how I got enrolled there. Oh, it, it was much better that she got to live at home with mom and, and dad. Also, uh, yeah. that's you know that's just a, a better got to be. Although mm-hmm. we have now we've talked to we've talked to people who've had good positive experiences at blind schools, and we've talked to some who who haven't. We've done all uh, all all sorts, but uh, this seems to be a a wonderful solution. And I just wonder why it wasn't adopted by other uh, entities, by New York, by San Francisco, by L.A., by, uh, you know, because uh, I've never heard of this. Uh-huh. Uh, now, I've heard of, uh, they've uh, in the 50s, they begin, in late 50s, you begin what they call mainstreaming kids. But when I went to school and I started the blind school in Texas in 1946, that was the only option. Mm-hmm. That's what you did with blind with your little blind children. If there had been another option, my parents would have would have done it. I'm sure, because it grieved my mother greatly that uh, that we went away to blind school. So your your childhood was very positive, wasn't it? It was. I had a I had a very special mother. She uh, she had no prior experience with anyone with visual impairment. None of her family was blind, and and I was the only one of uh, of, of her children that. Uh, yeah. Blind. Mm-hmm. I have a brother and two sisters, and and they're all you know fully sighted. So I was uh, I was a real challenge for her, and yet uh, she was unwilling to treat me any differently. In fact, she'd said, "I expect you to be just as normal as possible." And uh, uh, she would send me out to play. In those days, uh, you could go out to play with uh, complete uh, freedom and. Yeah. Uh, and, and feel pretty safe and secure, and we would go out during the summer. For example, we would we would eat breakfast and go out and play in our neighborhood, and we'd be gone the whole day. And uh, we'd get hungry, we'd stop at some neighbor's house, and they'd feed us. And uh, they, we, yeah. our only rule was we had to be back home by dark, and we'd be out playing all day long with the other uh, neighborhood kids. And of course, if I'd if I'd uh, you know cut myself or or bump my head or something and I'd go back into the house and she'd say well okay you take take me into the bathroom and wash off my cut or bruise and pour a little iodine on it or whatever and Mercurical. say okay go back yeah. out and play put some, and uh, that some was note. her that was her philosophy is uh, you you don't ever stay down you always get up again well that's what it takes to to integrate a blind child into society we had many at school who were who were uh, sent in a corner by their parents and said, "Well, you can't do anything." And of course, they didn't. Uh, you know, so no. You well, had and, to... and and you can understand that parents are protective; they worry about their children. And if the child has some type of disability, they worry even more that that child will uh, injure themselves or become injured through uh, uh, someone else's uh, actions or negligence. So that's a natural protective uh, response on the part of parents. But, of of course, oftentimes it works uh, in a negative way because it doesn't allow 
that child to evolve and develop and become self-sufficient. Uh, All right, Larry, let's uh, let's take a little short break, and we want to get back and talk about you after uh, high school and maybe some things you did in high school and, and get you out of high school. Back in just a minute with more of Blind Like Me. Johnson from San Antonio, Texas, who's had an interesting life. He, uh, we've got him in school in Chicago, um, in a uh, actually in a in a public school. Uh, they, like he said, the first five or six grades, they had a special homeroom that they that they had. But then they just dumped you into class with the other kids at about grade seven. Is that right? Well, we began integrating in grade in grade five. And All right. And, of course, back then there was no middle school, so elementary went through to eighth grade. Yeah. And, and then in high school, there was just one high school where uh, we could go, and so uh, all the blind kids from all over the city came to this one uh, high school, and we did our four years there. Now, did you? What did you do in high school? Did they have they had band back then, or did they? They have they didn't have they didn't have football. Football wasn't a big deal back then, was it? Well, yeah. it, it was. We we uh, uh, we invented some of our own games. We uh, we had a form of baseball that we'd play, and and a form of field hockey with a with a uh, with a crushed tin can. We'd we'd mm-hmm. kick each other in the shins a lot doing that. <laughs> And we also played uh, basketball, yeah. which was more like a wrestling basketball than, than full basketball because uh, anybody who had the ball, they'd get tackled, and we'd try to pull the ball away from them. And the, the, It was a real workout for 40 minutes. The only time that the coach would, uh, would stop the game is if he saw blood on the ball, and then he'd blow his whistle and say, we've got to find out who's bleeding. <laughs> Now this was just the blind kids did this. Yes. Uh, yeah. How many of you were there? Uh, do you remember? Oh, about? there must have been about twenty, twenty-five. Of course, there, well, there were some girls also, right? Yeah, yeah. Now they went. They went. They didn't play those rough sports. They went to uh, 
uh, cooking or, mm-hmm. or, or sewing or, oh, or yeah. some of those more domestic things. But they, they had a special phys ed class for the blind kids? Right. Uh, now, but other than that, like in science, were you just a, a part of the mainstream? We were or part of the main, main school. Okay. Uh, yeah. And another interesting program that they had in high school was um, we had uh, sighted readers come to our home room during study period and they would uh, uh, help us with our assignments. Okay. And these uh, these sighted readers were were students, and they would get um, uh, merit points uh, toward uh, receiving some kind of um, of um, uh, diploma or um, mm. certificate at the end of the year. For helping them. Uh, they would them. do things like you know hall monitor or help in the cafeteria or read to the blind kids. And um, I tell you, it was a great way to meet girls. <laughs> yes, and uh, boy, at that time, that was a tantamount in your mind meeting girls. That was, uh, and uh, I, I guess uh, I give that. So that worked out for you. It, it did. That was also a wonderful experience, right? Okay, so you you walked across the stage and got a diploma from this high school in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Then what did you what did you decide to do? Because I, I know that your book says I'm 18, so you went to Mexico pretty quick after high school, right? Well, no, actually, I was an early graduate. I um, I, I graduated from high school uh, at 16, well, and oh, yeah. uh, and so then I I went to a uh, what was called then junior college. Now they call them community college. Yeah, and I did that for two years. And uh, and then for, before my junior year, when I was going to enroll in Northwestern, that's when I took my first trip to Mexico as a tourist. I had a, a guide dog by then, a beautiful black Doberman Pinscher. And uh, so I, I was uh, wanting to experience a little adventure and excitement, and I decided that I, I was interested enough in Mexico because I had taken... Uh, Spanish uh, classes in high school for two years and then two years at the junior college. So I wanted to try out my my linguistic ability. And also I wanted to feel my independence now that I had a guide dog. And I thought that, well, going to Mexico ought to be fun. So I decided to do that. Well, Corey, one thing is times weren't then like they are now seemingly uh, you were a little safer um, than maybe not because i you know i don't know that that's true but um i i think you're right i i think that there at least there was a the, the perception that you could trust people more and that more people were willing to be um, trustworthy and and uh, m- more willing to be helpful Certainly, I found that to be true on my trip. I, I went down there, and as I say in my book, I I missed a train twice uh, while I was in Mexico trying to get to Mexico City. And although I had some kind of scary moments, everything turned out very well, and the people uh, helped me uh, experience a very positive uh, first visit to Mexico. And and which caused me to want to come back, which I did go back uh, a couple more times as a tourist. And, and, then, and live there for a while, didn't you? Uh, mm-hmm. And then I, after being a tourist, uh, I decided that uh, uh, that I wanted to move there and, and, and be a student for a while. 
um, I guess I got a little bored with living in Chicago and feeling that I wasn't going anywhere. And uh, so I decided to uh, <clears throat> enroll at a uh, university down there and, and be a graduate student. And then I met my wife, and uh, uh, we got married, and uh, we began to have kids. And, uh, and so then I, I lived there for 17 years in total. Well, we're kind of skipping around, but you alluded a while ago to the book, so let's talk a little about that. You have this book is a recent thing, though you that you've done. Well, it is, and, and it was a long time happening. When I came back to the states, I thought, you know, I really ought to write down some of these uh, adventures and experiences. Some of them are quite funny, and some of them were inspirational and poignant. And I thought, you know. Uh, Maybe somebody would enjoy knowing about these. And I, I would tell friends some of the little stories, and I, they would say, you know, you ought to write that down. And I, I thought about it and thought about it. And, and I even made a couple of feeble attempts at writing, typing it up, you know, on a typewriter and then giving yeah. it to someone to correct and then retype. And it was a, it was a very laborious process. But finally, in the mid-1980s, I became a... A computer user, and and that truly changed the whole uh, oh, picture, didn't yeah. it? Didn't because it? Now yeah. I could write and and correct my own writing, and so even at that, uh, because I was uh, involved in a lot of outside activities and working full time, it still took me probably fifteen years to finally finish the whole story, the book, a series of. It's really a series of um, episodes or anecdotes, and uh, and so I finally finished it <clears throat> about uh, two years ago, and I began searching for a publisher or an agent, and uh, was very frustrated because uh, no one was interested in my life story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot more important to you than it was to them, wasn't it? Well, that's yeah. right, and you know, I, I, one of the big problems is, of course, when you're a no-name, um, publishers are very reluctant to uh, to take a chance on you. you know, if, if my name were Bill Clinton or, or um, uh, Monica Lewinsky, then immediately I'd have uh, publishers lining up, you know, but... Uh, uh, who knows Larry Johnson? Who cares? You know that that he's gone to Mexico. So uh, it it's very difficult uh, for a new author to uh, uh, to attract the interest of a publisher. Uh, obviously, the reason that a publisher is in business is to make money. And they, sure. They'll make money only if they think they can sell lots of books. So I went to something that's called. Uh, print-on-demand publisher. And print-on-demand is a kind of a halfway between a traditional publisher and self-publishing. Uh, in self-publishing, you pay a printer to go ahead and print your book and make whatever you want, 5,000 copies or 10,000 copies, and yeah. then uh, you pay for the whole thing, and then you go out and try and sell them. And, of course, a traditional publisher, they're the ones that... Uh, that absorb all the costs, and they they print the five thousand or ten thousand or whatever number they think they're going to sell. And a print on demand, because of modern technology, uh, all you do is you pay for the initial setup. You you have to give them a final 
uh, edited uh, electronic uh, copy of your book, and then they will set it up so that it's ready to be printed. But they don't actually print any copies until orders come in. And uh, it's amazing to me that uh, a book, my book is about 240 pages. Uh, it's a paperback, but it you know has a cover and has a picture on the cover and yeah. all of that, and it's bound. And they can produce that book in less than two minutes with modern technology. So you walk into a Barnes & Noble or a Borders bookstore and you say, I want to buy Larry Johnson's book, Mexico by Touch. And they say, okay, and they tell their distributor. The distributor tells my publisher. The publisher says, okay. They print that book and, and it's out the same day. Uh, but if you wanted a hundred copies, well, that, they yeah. would run a hundred copies for yeah. you, and then you could give them to your friends, or you could right. sell them. It, it's like uh, I do music, so uh, I do music, but I've never had a uh, thousand CDs made. I just make them as I want them, you know. Yeah. Which yeah. is and, the same. And you're absolutely right, and I have done that. I do order order them, and and then when I. Uh, I do quite a number of uh, speaking engagements and, and seminars and workshops on a variety of subjects, and so I always try to have uh, a few copies of my book available. Well, sure, to, to sell to people. I do the same thing, personal yeah. appearances. I always yeah. have, you know, you can buy Phil Parsi. I tell you what, let's listen. We have a little excerpt okay. that you sent me, and we want to listen. This is you reading your uh, a little, the, I guess, the first uh, part of your book is this? Yeah, the, this is this from is, uh, chapter one. Uh -huh. From chapter one. All right, let's see if we can get that. Uh, see if we can get that uh, going here. Let's see. Uh, what have I done wrong? Let's see. Well, we had it a minute ago, didn't we? Yeah, we did. <laughs> Let me see. What have I? What could I possibly have done? Uh, Incorrectly here, sir. Let's push this button again. Yeah, what? While see. you're hunting for that, I'll explain that uh, what my book came out in print about a year ago, mm -hmm. and uh, I got uh, chided by a number of my friends, uh, particularly sure. blind Something friends, my who said, uh, "Well, why don't you record it? Because uh, we can't read the print." And uh, yeah. I said, well, I'm not quite sure how to go about doing that. Well, I did a little investigating, and, and I was able to purchase some software from the American Printing House for the Blind called uh, uh, Studio Recorder. And you did it on your computer. And I did it on my computer. And, and this software makes it possible for you to edit right on your computer just like you would edit uh, a Microsoft Word document. And you there can take, is, um, there's, take a word out, put a word in, and you can move words around. It is it is so neat. And, I've uh, seen their program, but there are several off-the-shelf programs that will uh -huh. allow you to do that. Yeah. Uh, Gold Wave. Right. Uh, right. Sound Forge. And, um, and, and some of those are more friendly to yeah. uh, speech uh, you know, access than others. This one is very, very friendly. And, uh, and so I went ahead and I... Um, after I recorded it, then I, I put it on CD, and so now I have a CD version, uh, <clears throat> which I sell directly. I, I don't have that in stores, but I sell yeah. that directly. And that and, is, and there are 
I'm sorry? That is compressed. Uh, it's MP3 compressed because you couldn't do 240 pages in 80 minutes. Well, <laughs> no, it's on five CDs. Oh, it's on five CDs. Five okay. CDs. All right. And the reason I did that is so that folks who don't have computers, they can just play it on a regular CD player. Yeah, and those blanks are cheap. You can get them 20 cents a piece if you buy enough of them, you know. Mm -hmm. I think I've got this. Let me... All right. Let's try this one more time. 18, blind, scared, and alone in a hotel room in San Luis Potosí, Mexico. I came awake, paralyzed by fear. Something had touched my face. Something cold and menacing. I lay perfectly still, waiting, listening. There it was again, something as chilling as death rushing against my cheek. My heart pounded with terror. The muscles around my throat tensed. Drops of sweat rolled off my forehead. A terrifying, tingling, numbing sensation spread over my whole body. I did not try to scream. I don't think I could have screamed. Slowly, struggling against the gripping paralysis of fear, I slid my left hand out from under the covers, and bringing it up quickly to my face, I seized the thing of terror. It was a hand, cold and lifeless. <laughs> I laughed out loud. It was mine. <laughs> yeah, it was your hand. It was scary. <laughs> it was. How much had you been drinking uh, that uh, that morning, Blair? Uh, Apparently, what what had happened was I had slept on my arm, or had been dangling off the side of the bed. Uh -huh. And as you know, what can happen is. All the blood can can just disappear from that hand and or arm and and it, it goes completely numb. Yeah. And you have no feeling in it whatsoever and apparently I had just kind of lifted it up and without realizing it touched my own face and uh, it scared the living daylight well, out you were, of me you because were... there I was, you know, alone in this hotel room and and I was uh, I was concerned that these two uh, Mexican fellows who had taken me there that maybe they were, had come back and they had some <laughs> some sinister purpose. <laughs> well, like I said, that you were you were in a, in a strange surroundings, and that I'm sure added to, to your heightened awareness of your your uh, sense of danger. Right. List uh, the book on five CDs. Before we get, I want to get into radio. Obviously, you've done some radio. You can you can tell that by your your voice. You've either been trained or trained it yourself. Uh, if someone wants a copy of the book, are you can you send them one or? Uh, oh, well, absolutely, and, and I'll be happy to give my address and uh, folks that are interested. Now, if you're in the United States, uh, uh, I. I uh, give you a price if it's outside of the united states i don't know what the shipping would be phil but yeah the the five cd set is 25 bucks plus three dollars for shipping okay and uh i found that that's very very reasonable price of what i've checked out in cds pricing in in stores you uh a set of two cds in barnes and noble cost you 30 bucks so yeah this is a five set for 25 plus three for shipping and my address is uh, Larry Johnson, uh, 10863 Lake Path, and that's L-A-K-E-P-A-T-H, two words, drive, San Antonio, Texas, 78217. And my phone number, if they want to call and ask questions before they order, it's 210-239-9900. Uh, 
590 And the book, again, is called Mexico by Touch. Now, uh, in case someone didn't get that, do you mind giving an email address? Those are sometimes easier to to yeah. process and somebody to e sure. they can email you, get your physical address, and uh, you could make a deal. Okay, give me your email address. It's L-A-R-J-O, and then the number one, Larjo1 at Prodigy.net. Larjo1 at Prodigy.net. Are you in the phone book in your name in San Antonio? Yeah, there are about seven of us. There are oh, about are seven there? Larry Johnsons. <laughs> well, darn, so that's that's not going to help any. Well, we'll give that again at the end, and and maybe somebody that would like to have a, a set of those books, like to read that book, if, if, is it available through APH? Uh, no, not yet. No, uh, the... Uh, the library, the state library says eventually they're going to have a recorded version. It won't be my voice, but they're going to have somebody recorded here in Texas, in the Texas library, but I don't know when well, that will be available. It, it wouldn't want to do it easy and go ahead and use the voice that's already there. Let's do it again and spend taxpayers' money to have... Um, yeah. Tom yep. Boots recorded. That makes a lot of sense. Doesn't it? All right, you. I you, may be. In fact, I don't know this, but I may be the first totally blind person to self-record their own book. Well, you're the first one I know of. So, okay. uh, but that doesn't mean anything. I tell you, let's take a little break, and we want to get into radio and how you got into it, and and because uh, we have we have lots of folks out here who love radio, just like you and I do. Uh, right. So hang on a minute more of Blind Like Me. Uh, be right back. a website our crack research team certifies screen reader friendly. Now with this week's Blind Sight, here's Don Shaw. You know, the information age is a great time to be kicking around. If you've got to be a blind person and want lots of information choices, it's just getting better and better all the time. If a person's got the right equipment, man, it's just endless information i have come across a site this week that's good for another source for reading a book online it's called page by page books and you can go to the site and basically read a number of books from the site it's uh screen reader friendly you kind of find the link to the book that you want Click on that, get to the contents, read that, and just start reading the book. I don't think the book can be downloaded, but it, it can be read from their site. Anyway, if you're interested in this site, go to www.pagebybybooks.com and take a look at them. I think it'll be worth your time. I will give them a screen reader friendliness rating of a 9. Until next time, I'm Don Shaw. Keep on blind sighting. If you found a screen reader friendly website you'd like us to mention, send your email to blindlikeme, all one word, at txucom.net. And join us again next time for Blind Sight. Blind
are back with the third segment of Blind Like Me. I'm Phil Parr. Guest is Larry Johnson from San Antonio, Texas, who's written his own book, Mexico by Touch. He has written it and read it himself. Five CD set. You can get it at a very reasonable price. And if you just join us, we're going to give you an address. We'll give you the address at the end of this exciting message. <laughs> that kind of thing, all right? All right. <laughs> Larry Johnson from San Antonio, you got, did you fall in love with radio as a, as a child? Like most of us are telling Yes, I really did. Uh, and, and, you know, back then, of course, there was a lot more on radio, a lot of adventure programs. And uh, I, I used to be glued to the radio every afternoon listening to Terry and the Pirates and the Lone Ranger and Buck Rogers and all of those. So I really wanted to get into radio. And, and, and I, I think very early on decided that I wanted to be a radio announcer. What well, yes. <laughs> So... <laughs> so uh, uh, I made that my major when I went into college, and uh, I, I was actually uh, almost didn't get into the school at Northwestern's uh, School of Speech and, and Radio and Television uh, Division because the the assistant dean called me into his office and he tried to talk me out of it. And he, oh yeah. He began by telling me, "So well, you know, you're going to have to be able to read the the, the second hand uh, and very." closely because radio is very, very, you know, uh, down to the second. And I, I took out my old uh, Ingersoll pocket watch, which I had uh, adapted, and I showed him that. And he kind of frowned, and he said, well, also you're going to have to be able to read commercials and news. And I said, well, I, I've got Braille. I can do that. He said, well, you're, you're going to have a lot of problems. And uh, I, I realized that he was right, but the problems were not going to be so much technical as they were going to be attitudinal, yes. and and he was the one those that I, barriers that I had to overcome. Well, it worked out okay. I actually did uh, radio at Northwestern on their university station. Did a couple of shows for them, and and then I uh, got into commercial radio in um, a radio station in Evanston, Illinois, which is just outside of Chicago. Little AM daytimer or what? Yeah, it was yeah. a it was a AM and FM station, and I did a <laughs> I did a program of Latin American music. So uh, uh, I was sort of uh, interested in both radio and in Latin America at the same time, and uh, so then when I went to Mexico to enroll at the uh, University down there to to uh, study. I discovered that there was a radio station that broadcast part time in English, uh -huh. and I said, "Well, you know, I can do that." So I volunteered to work for them first few months for free, just to prove to them that I could do it. And I got my foot in the door, and I eventually got hired. And I was with that station for the better part of the seventeen years that I lived there. Really? Well, you you grew up in a great market. Chicago is uh, one of the big markets with about six of those old 50-kilowatt radio mm -hmm. stations, big stations that you can hear all over the nation still mm -hmm. to this day. You know, News Radio 78, WBBM. Mm -hmm. I listen to them all the time. Anyway, you can those big 50-kilowatt stations. You had all the networks in Chicago. Uh, so, so that would be a great market for a kid interested in radio to grow up in. 
and you went over to this little station in Evanston, and um, they had little had a little uh, probably an AM daytimer at that time. They had an AM daytimer, FM twenty four hours. Twenty four hours. Of course, the big thing in those radio stations was you had to be a salesman. Yeah. Not just have a voice, but you had to be able to go out and get your own accounts. Uh huh. And and that that's how they allowed me to be on the air. Was I I would go out and I would find sponsors that would uh, <clears throat> pay for the time that yeah. I was on the air. In um, 1963, I went to a little radio station in Texas City and bought two hours a week. That's how mm-hmm. I got in radio. I bought two hours a week, and then I went out and sold sponsors, and I would go down on Saturdays and do my little two-hour show. And the truth, the absolute truth is I got so far in debt to them, they had to hire me to get to work the debt off. <laughs> and that's how I that's how I got mine for and I stayed with those people about ten years. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so you you uh, you combined your love of Mexico with doing radio in Mexico, mm-hmm. and but you you didn't work any, any place else in the states except this little station in Evanston. Right, right. Uh, well, until I came back, and that was thirty years ago, and then I came back and I I got into television here, but uh, yeah, in San Antonio, but. Uh, it was interesting when I went to Mexico. The radio station that I went to work for, uh, that was bilingual, they played American music. So I went from a radio station in Chicago playing Latin music <laughs> to a radio station in Mexico playing American music. That's that's uh, juxtapositioning, if I ever heard it. Uh, and, it well, and 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 also what happens, and this often happens in radio, is. I started out in at the radio station in Mexico City as a uh, host for a classical music program. And that was the spot they had available, so I went in and I became the very deep voice, you know, and now yes. here is Tchaikovsky's, uh, you know, Whatever. concerto number one. Yeah. And, and, uh, and little by little, I transitioned to doing other programs, and we were playing middle-of-the-road music during the day, and uh, I did, you know, that. And then we did uh, uh, some um, around-the-world music, so I learned a little bit about Italian music and French music. And, uh, and then in 1963, the station had a change in management, a change in programming, and we went to a top 40 rock format. Mm-hmm. So I had to make a total change again, and uh, I sent you a couple of clips on that of uh, how uh, I had to really uh, create a new upbeat and very lively kind of style for that uh, program. And one of the most successful programs we had was a request show that was very appealing to the high school kids, and they used to call in. By the hundreds. Yeah. And uh, that was very exciting to me because you really had a very loyal and very active audience. And uh, that was a lot of fun. Well, you you became, rather than this stoic state announcer that was introducing Tchaikovsky records, you did the same thing the rest of us did. You became a screamer. Mm-hmm. And everybody <laughs> talked a lot on the radio at that time now, didn't they? I mean, everybody talked like yeah, that. That's, that's right. the way that's radio, right. I mean, dumb as it sounds now, that's the way we all talked. That yeah. was the, That's how you did, Chucky. Yeah. But before that, let me play a couple of commercials that uh, that you sent me. I think the first one's for American Express. Let's see if we can get this this thing going here, Larry. Should have American Express coming up. Da-da-da. 
<laughs> well, I know it's here. It's the world of entertainment. That's because there are more restaurants, nightclubs, and hotels throughout the world that accept the American Express card than any other card. But that's not all. When you see the American Express shield at an establishment, you know that it represents the quality that you would expect from an organization like ours. We built our reputation on this. Now we want you to enjoy it. Some of the best restaurants in the entire world are right here in Mexico City. Next time you take your family or friends out for dinner or an evening on the town, use your American Express card. There's no need to worry about cash, and you have a convenient record of your expenses. That's just another reason why American Express is the only card you ever need. If you want a suggestion or two from us, how about some tender spare ribs at Delmonico's, steak soaked in lemon at Anderson's, or some chow mein at Luau? Go ahead. Just take your app. Why that keeps dropping out? Let's see what the next one is here. Let's see. How would you like to take a trip right now off to Mexico? You're seated at a table in a charming Mexican restaurant. Before you, a tantalizing array of sumptuous Mexican delicacies excites your appetite. Nearby, a group of strolling musicians plays traditional Mexican songs, especially for you. There's a warm feeling of friendly hospitality everywhere. Everything is perfect. Now imagine finding such a delightful place right here in the heart of Chicagoland. It's no dream. At La Margarita Restaurants, 868 North Wabash and 6319 West Dempster, you'll find all of this and more. But don't take my word for it. See for yourself. One visit will be enough to make them your favorites. La Margarita Downtown at 868 North Wabash and La Margarita del Norte, 6319 West Dempster. Past the enchiladas, you know? Yeah, you know, uh, working in radio, of course, uh, you, you don't make a lot of money. No. And <laughs> it's, uh, it it, it uh, satisfies your ego a lot, but it doesn't bring home a lot of bread. So it's always important to look for... Uh, uh, secondary income, and and one of the big things was to be able to do uh, voiceover commercials. And uh, I was very fortunate that uh, I, I became uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, most uh, requested of the uh, voiceover announcers in Mexico at, for the ad agencies down there. And they yeah. used to uh, have me come in and do commercials, not just for Mexico, but for uh, the states as well. And and uh, Nassau and Bermuda and wherever else that uh, they uh, had accounts. So it was quite a quite a, a thrill and, and a challenge to do uh, commercials because uh, one of the key things about doing commercials is that you have to be very time-specific. If they say, okay, you've got to read this text in 30 seconds, well, it didn't mean 32, it meant 30. And uh, so you have to learn pacing and uh, intonation and all of that. And it was kind of fun. Well, even more so with the computer now, you've got to, I mean, it's got to be on time. Mm -hmm. They want it to 28 and a half, 29 seconds, and they want, that's what they want. Yeah. And uh, that's what, uh, you know, that's what you've got to give them. Mm -hmm. uh, we used to, radio stations, I've worked at radio stations where, you know, where 30 meant 45. 
Because <laughs> uh, it didn't make any difference how long. You know, as long as it would fit on a 40-second cart, they, it was considered a 30. Uh, that was, and if the 60s, if it would fit on a 70-second cart, then it was at 30, uh, for all practical purposes. But yes, you, what you have to be, if you do voiceover, you have to be an actor. Uh, that's right. You have to be an actor. You have to act the part. If uh, if it calls for a soft voice, then you have to be a very soft actor. You have to, be, mm-hmm. you know. And if you if you're screaming a commercial, well, that's you know there and there. That's production is the fun of radio. I mean, it's the it's the icing on the cake. Yes, you get to work four hours on the air, but you soon get tired of that. Mm-hmm. That soon. You soon get tired of that, but when they take you to the production room and they let you do commercials, that's the fun. Agree? It really is. So you did a good bit of radio in Mexico. Let's let me see if I've got this. I might have this uh, screaming thing <laughs> queued up here. I'm not uh, sure of anything uh, anymore. The way I used to sound. The way you used to sound. Let's see. <laughs> the end of something in here. That's another commercial. That's the... Uh, yeah, that's the end of it, though. All right, let's see what uh, what comes up here. Uh, 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 uh. Don't touch that dial. It's your Friday night festival of favorites. Whoa, don't touch that dial. Leave it on the station. I'm going to make another dedication. Oh, yeah. Music by request on Radio Capital's weekly English language request program, your Friday Festival of Favorites. Here's your chance to pick the tunes you like the most and have them played especially for you this very night. Just give us a call at XEL between now and 11.30 and ask for your favorite song or artist. And if you want to include a dedication along with the request, let us know and we'll be glad to mention it on the air. So start dialing right now while we open the door and let in the music. That's right. That was uh, the most popular request show that uh, was in Mexico City during the uh, 60s and early 70s. And uh, I I used to handle, uh, during the first hour, uh, it was a two-hour program, and during the first hour I would handle upwards of 150 calls uh, by myself, two telephones, writing down not just the request but the dedication reading the commercials and playing the records all in that first hour. And now, you, so it was pretty fast-paced, and uh, we had a really large audience, and it was very exciting because the the the, teener, the teenagers were very, very loyal and, and very enthusiastic, so it was quite thrilling. And I, I talk about uh, a birthday party, a surprise birthday party that they gave for me at one, uh, one year in my book, and... Uh, and some of the other experiences that I had. And even now today, Phil, I, I'm delighted when I have uh, uh, some of these former teenagers who are now uh, in their 50s, 40s and 50s, who now call me and they say, you know, I used to listen to you back then, and it really made an impression on me. And I just want to tell you how grateful I am that you did your show. That's that's uh, those those are great memories, and you talk about all this in the book, right? Uh, uh, indeed, yes. Uh-huh. Well, unfortunately, we have run completely out of time. 
So what I'd like for you to do is give me your email address and telephone number again so someone could contact you to get uh, your book. Okay. All right. The book is Mexico by Touch, and my email is L-A-R-J-O-1, large O-1, at prodigy.net. And the phone number is 210-590-6777. All right. Maybe uh, you'll get some some uh, some orders for books. We we hope so. We couldn't make much money at 25 hours a set. Uh, you won't get rich doing that. I hope, you're, hope the Social Security check comes this week, this month. God, so if it doesn't, we're all in trouble. Well, I, I, we could spend several hours talking. Uh, we both have a common interest, and that is, of course, radio. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. But I want to thank you, sir, and uh, I'll call you when this is uh, when we're ready to run this. Well, I thank you very much. And again, congratulations on your golden anniversary program. Hang on. Well, Larry Larry uh, Johnson from San Antonio, Texas. What's my call here? Let's see. Oh, I see. It was panned over to the left. Larry Johnson from San Antonio. Quite a guy. Haven't read the book, but I bet it's a it's a good book. I don't think it's a straight plot book. I think it's it's a bunch of his adventures in Mexico all strung together. So ought to be a good read. Um, I recommend it. Well, I want to remind you again about our little thing that we have going, our uh, November uh, gathering that we're putting together in Houston, Texas. This will be uh, starting on the 5th of November, 5th, 6th, and 7th. The 7th morning of the 7th, we'll take the 100th Blind Handyman Show, and we want you to be there if you can. We can't give you all the details. We will tell you that it's at the Sheridan Hotel on uh, JFK Boulevard, which is out by the big airport, the, the uh, big international airport. And um, we'll start, like I said, on the Friday the 5th and do the show on the 7th and then I'll go home on the 8th. If you want more information, you can call me at 936-634-9500. 936-634-9500 or email me, Par at thucom.net. We'd love to see you in November. Lots of friends will be there. And uh, as we see in the announcement, a good place to to uh, make new friends and meet uh, some old ones. Weird boop is coming, so uh, you wouldn't want to miss it now, would you? Hmm? We're pretty sure Lee A. Stone and Tim Cummings are going to be there. Haven't heard from Kevin Doucet, but uh, hope to hear from him in the next few days. Anyway, call me 936-634-9500. Thank you much. See you in November. And uh, we'll see you next week with another Blind Like Me. Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.